the applause was for donuts and coffee, I think, so that's, that's all right. We can applaud for God's Word, too. But you can go ahead and uh, take, your, take your Bible out and stand for our Scripture reading this morning, as we'll be reading and continuing in Genesis, as Pastor Bruce continues in his series through, through Genesis. We're in chapter 9 today. We'll be reading Genesis 9, 1 through 17. If you need a Bible, there's a, a, a pew Bible in front of you there. You can grab it. It's on page 5. We'll be reading Genesis 9, verses 1 through 17, living under the rainbows. We've been looking at Noah and the life of Noah and the flood over the last couple of weeks. And then what happens next? We find it in the text in Genesis 9. So follow along as I read Genesis 9, verses 1 through 17. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air and on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, and bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, and all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth, and the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant. Covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the covenant that you made. We thank you that you, the, the floodwaters will cover the earth and your way of, and your plan and your redemption of man. We can see it all through your, your scriptures and it starts all the way back here in Genesis. And just help us to learn this morning what you would have us to learn. Be with Pastor Bruce as he has studied this week and prepared his lesson. That we would have open hearts and minds to hear from you this morning and just learn from Genesis 9 and the covenant which you have made with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are once again continuing in our series through the book of Genesis, specifically the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And in case you're wondering... Uh, We will actually conclude this series four weeks from today. And so after today, we got three more lessons, and we will end with chapter 11 on September the 23rd. In a Peanuts cartoon strip, Lucy and Linus are staring out the window, and they are watching it rain. I mean, it is pouring down. The conversation goes something like this. Lucy says, boy, look at it rain. 
What if it floods the whole world? And Linus replies, it won't. In Genesis 9, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of that promise is the rainbow. And Lucy, turning back to the window, says with this relieved look on her face, you've taken a great load off of my mind. Linus calmly responds, sound theology has a way of doing that. Now we can chuckle at that cartoon, but my man Linus was on to something here. Sound theology not only takes a load off of our minds, it also teaches us what God is like and what he expects of us. Sound theology, that sounds dull and boring, but it's not. Sound theology is focused on God, and it is meant to offer us a way in which we live, to alter the way in we live. And so as we look here in this passage of Scripture, here in Genesis chapter 9, we're going to see that sound theology can actually give us confidence. It can give us hope in this fallen world in which we live. And as we go through this passage, keep in mind, it's all about God. In fact, we tend to focus, when we come to this specific passage in the story of Noah and the flood, we tend to focus on the rainbow in the clouds. But what we're going to see is actually the emphasis is on the God of the rainbow. God is actually the only one who speaks in this or in Acts. Noah doesn't say a thing. He doesn't do a thing. God is the initiator. He's the one who establishes this new beginning in a new world for Noah and his family. And so sound theology really can take a load off of our minds. In fact, here's the lesson that I want us to take away. Notice it in your notes. You're welcome to pull that insert out and follow along or just on the screen behind me. But the God of the rainbow teaches us. It shows us that because God is faithful, we can live with assurance. We can live with this confidence, this hope, and this assurance that God will remember to keep his promises. Now, if you have ever gone through a traumatic experience in your life, afterward, you've probably struggled with some level of anxiety about, man, is that going to happen again? I just went through it one time. Am I going to experience that traumatic experience again? Several years ago, uh, while my wife was working, she was in a very severe car accident where a tractor trailer T-boned her. And when she got T-boned on the driver's side of her car, it just spun her car several different times, about 50 yards down the road, and landed in a ditch. And uh, by the grace of God, she walked away with, from that car accident with just a few broken ribs uh, in a car that was totally, uh, well, it was total beyond repair. But here's the why I tell you that, because for the next few years, there was not a week that went by when I didn't think about the possibility, wow, that could happen again. My wife could be in that accident again. She, she's a physical therapist, drives, uh, does home health care, so she drives to different patients' houses, and so she's on the road every day when she works. And so the, the risk, if you will, of going, it rises in increases of an accident. And I'm like, man, the first few years after that, is she going to be in an accident again? Is she going to die? Could she be in a severe one? 
And, uh, of course, we can't guarantee that traumatic events will not happen again. Life is uncertain in these matters. But more than anyone who has ever lived, Noah needed God's assurance. He needed the reassurance from God concerning his judgment. Noah has just survived the most devastating, widespread judgment God has ever inflicted on the human race. Everyone on the earth except Noah and his family has been destroyed in the flood. We can barely imagine the feelings of anxiety which swept over Noah and his family as they stepped out of that ark as the only survivors on the planet. Imagine what must have gone through Noah's mind as he scanned the horizon of the world God had just destroyed. The world he had known before entering the ark is now gone. Cities is gone. Civilization is now gone. Sin had definitely taken its toll. And I can imagine the question that perhaps just crossed Noah's mind as he's stepping out of that ark, as he's walking on dry ground for the first time in over a year, is how long until it happens again? After all, he too was a sinner, as we will see next Sunday, along with his three sons and their wives and families. And so wouldn't it merely be a matter of time before the earth was corrupted by sin again, filled with violence again? Then what? Will we have another flood? Imagine the terror they would have felt when they heard the thunder and they saw the storm clouds forming. Every little rainstorm would make their stomachs churn. What if the rain doesn't stop? What if God destroys the world again? Anxious people need assurance. And perhaps that's you here this morning. Perhaps you're a little anxious about some stuff going on in your own heart, your own life. Well, that's what God gives us when he promised never to destroy the earth again with a flood. In fact, God reassures Noah and also us here when he says in verse 15, and I will remember. And when God says, I will remember, he is declaring, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and I will keep that covenant. Be assured. Have confidence as you now live in this world. So living under this rainbow of God's grace, what does that mean? What does that look like for us here in the 21st century? Well, let's unpack it for a little bit here this morning. Number one, God revealed his gracious commands for creation. God reveals, first of all, his gracious commands for creation. Remember, when Noah and his family stepped off the ark, all of human life had been destroyed. It was a new beginning for a new human race. But as humanity began to repopulate the earth, people might get the wrong idea that life was worthless to God. But God's commands here to Noah and his sons and to us by application shows that the contrary is true. And so it's significant that one of the first things God affirmed to Noah was the sanctity of human life. God wanted to reestablish the foundation for a proper view of human life before the earth was ever repopulated. And so right here, in verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons. In fact, we already saw early on in this series that this blessing is tied to this idea of uh, multiplying and, and filling the earth. 
uh, to reproduction. And so God blessed Noah and his sons, and it might surprise us, but God's blessing came in the form of commands. We tend to think that the blessed life is the command-free life. It's what we all tend to think, but not so. The blessed life is a life lived in submission to the will of the giver of life. The blessed life is not living your own way. It's living God's way. And so in blessing Noah and his sons, God gave them some commands that he expected them to obey. Notice the first command. He says to them, multiply human life to promote God's glory to the ends of the earth. In a display of his continued grace, God commands Noah and his sons in verse 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then God repeats the command later on in verse 7 when he says, as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply it. Now, do those words sound just a little familiar? They should. Because God is repeating the same command he first gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. But now he's repeating it with some qualifications due to sin. God charged Noah's family to multiply and by implication to exercise dominion over the earth. Now, obviously, this was a very practical command. After all, all of humanity, humidity, humanity, that's what we're feeling now, humidity outside. All of humanity had been destroyed in the flood due to their sinfulness. And so now it was necessary for Noah's family to repopulate the earth. But there is also a greater purpose in this command that God's given to them. And that is to spread God's glory to the ends of the earth. This is the whole point, as we've already seen, of being made in, or created in the very image of God. We are to represent God. We are to reflect his glory to the ends of the earth as we multiply and fill the earth. And of course, the image of God has now been marred by sin. But the good news is it can be restored in Jesus Christ, which means... We can only fulfill our God-given purpose in life to spread God's glory in Jesus Christ. We need to be redeemed through Christ. And that's what Christ does for us, as we're going to see here in a minute. And so the first gracious command that God gives to Noah and his family is to multiply human life for the purpose to promote or to spread God's glory to the ends of the earth. And so God is renewing the very first commandment, the, what we call the cultural command back in Genesis. It's still carrying on. The plan for man, his design is still carrying on even after the flood. Number two, there's a second command. And that is to sustain human life with this provision or this permission by God to use animals as food. Now, in the post-flood world, some things remain the same. We just saw one, the command to multiply human life. That's the same. Nothing's changed about that. But some things did change after the flood. You say, like what? What changed? Well, notice what it says here in verse 2. In the fear of you, in the dread of you, shall be on every beast of the earth. That's different from the world of Adam. Adam and Eve lived in harmony with the animals that God created. Not so anymore. No, Moses goes on and he writes, 
on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. And then he reestablishes this domain or this authority that mankind has over the animal world. He says, they are given into your hand. And so God assured Noah and his family that, in a sense, they would have the same dominion or the same authority over the animals as Adam did, except now it would be maintained by this natural fear of man that God would put in the animals. All of this was for the purpose of food. When God says in verse 3, look at it. Notice what he says. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Evidently, before the flood, man was a vegetarian along with the animals. Now, it is possible that perhaps man ate meat before the flood, but he did so without God's authorization or without God's permission. But now, God is specifically, explicitly telling Noah and his family that it's permissible to eat meat as part of their normal diet. Now, we live in a culture today where the relationship between humanity and the animal world, if I can say this in all honesty, is twisted and it's upside down. It's reversed from what God has established here in the book of Genesis. But Moses is showing us that God made animals to serve people, not people to serve animals. Certainly, we should, res we should protect animals from heedless or needless destruction. And certainly, we should be kind to animals. In fact, it's fascinating what it says in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10. It says, the righteous man regards the life of his animal. And so we have an obligation to care for and to be kind to animals. But at the same time, Moses is reestablishing for us that animals are given to us by God to serve us and not vice versa. But with this gracious provision from God comes with a restriction in verse 4. Look what God says. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. In other words, God's restriction is that we must not eat meat with the blood in it. Humans are not to devour animals the way animals devour animals, while the blood is still pulsating in the flesh. And the reason for this is respect for life. And beyond that, respect for the giver of life. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, Moses teaches us that life is in the blood. And God is the giver of life. Life is, in other words, God's possession to give and to take. It is not ours. Therefore, a wanton disregard for the gift of life is to disrespect the very giver of life. This restriction against eating blood also prepared humanity to appreciate the use of blood that would come later in the Old Testament sacrificial system and ultimately Jesus shed blood on the cross. And so that's the second command that God gave to Noah and his family and to us. The third command we see here is to protect human life through the principle of capital punishment. Before the flood, and we saw this, not only was humanity thoroughly corrupted by sin, 
but the earth was filled. And the Bible uses, Moses, the author of Genesis, uses a very specific word, and he says the, the world was filled with violence. The world was filled with men like Cain and Lamech, men who were violent and murderous. As you know, Cain killed his brother Abel in anger, and Lamech actually killed a young boy in vengeance, in retaliation for just hurting him. And so murder and violence was ho-hum, everyday occurrence before the flood. After the flood, Noah's descendants had the potential to descend to the same levels of murder and violence, especially as the population would increase. And so God here wanted to make sure that Noah and his family and their descendants and all of humanity would understand that human life is to be protected. Human life is to be respected and valued. Why? Because every person is made in the image of God. That alone sets us and makes us distinct from the animals. And we saw this. We looked at it. We did one whole message on this. That's what makes us distinct. It makes us unique. It's what gives us our worth and our dignity. We are made, we are created in the image of God. Look how serious God is about the sanctity of human life in verse 5. He says, surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. Sometimes that word is translated accounting. In other words, you will... You take a life, God says, you're going you're gonna to stand before me. You're, I'm going to hold you accountable for that. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. So it's not just mankind, it's not just humanity, but it's even creatures. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Now, no sin shows a greater contempt for life than murder. Whereas an animal's blood may be shed but not consumed, human blood must not be shed. In fact, so valuable is human life that God will demand this reckoning or this accounting of any animal that sheds man's blood, just as God will demand a reckoning of any man that sheds another man's blood. And what's interesting here, this phrase that, that God uses here of every man's brother, that echoes the very first murder, when Cain murdered his brother Abel. But it also, by virtue of our shared humanity in the image of God, all murder is not just homicide, but what, this word that is used to describe uh, murder against a family member or a brother, fratricide. And God then establishes now this principle of capital punishment. We see this in verse 5, and then it's made explicit here in verse 6. Look what it says. God says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And then again, he gives us the reason why. For in the image of God, he made man. Now, since man is created in the image of God, and since man's life is God's alone, to take human life, in other words, is to usurp God's sovereign authority over life and death, and thus merits death itself. That is God's reasoning. It's precisely because life is so precious to God, so valuable in his eyes, 
that the one who willfully takes another's life must suffer what we would call the death penalty. And so God then delegates human authority, what we, we call government. In fact, you can go to Romans chapter 13, where God there talks about, through the Apostle Paul, the authority and the institution where God ordains human governments to implement the principle of capital punishment, the right to take life in certain circumstances. Now, again, I get it. We are living in a day and age where capital punishment is not socially acceptable anymore, nor politically correct. But we are seeing here that protecting human life is commanded by God. The death penalty was instituted by God because God values human life way more than man values human life. This was and is God's command to a violent world. This was meant and is still meant to protect human life. Any society that loses its reverence, its respect for human life cannot, will not endure long. And so for this reason, in an act of grace, God instituted capital punishment as a gracious restraint on man's sinful tendency toward violence. This means to ignore it. To ignore this principle, to ignore God's word here, is to descend evermore into a society of unmitigated violence. Now, I'll let you make the application of what we see here in our own country and even around the world. To connect the dots is rather easy. Sound theology, it helps us, it urges us to appreciate the value of life as we follow God's gracious commands. God not only revealed his gracious commands for creation, but we also see in the second part of this passage of scripture here that God revealed his gracious covenant to creation. His gracious covenant. This is the first covenant in the Bible. This covenant is oftentimes called the Noahic covenant. Now, perhaps you're wondering, well, what is a covenant? And if you want a one-word definition to help you remember what a covenant is, just think of promise. One author offers this explanation. In modern times, we define a host of relations by contracts. These are usually for goods or services or money. The contract, whether formal or informal, helps to specify failure in these relationships. The Lord did not establish a contract with Noah. He established a covenant. And according to another author, a covenant is simply a pledge or a promise and a defined relationship. In other words, we could summarize it this way. A covenant, or in a covenant, God promises to do certain things in a defined relationship of responsibility towards certain people. Now, most covenants in the Bible have at least two components to them. There are stipulations to the covenant, and then there's a sign to the covenant. And that's what we see here. There are stipulations and a sign. Let's notice the stipulation of the covenant. And what, here it is. God promised never again to destroy the earth with a flood. And to that we say, man, thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And do you realize God has kept this promise for over 4,000 years now? 
Yes, we have seen local floods, and local floods have done great damage across our world. Lives have been lost as a result of local floods. But we have never seen since this flood here in Genesis a global flood. God promised he would never do it again. Look what God promised to Noah and his family here in verses 8 through 11. He says, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. So that includes us. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you, and now he states it specifically. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, there's three observations that just jump out of the pages of this, off of this. And if you want to write these words down, they're not in your notes, you can. And that is unilateral, unconditional, and universal. Three words to describe this covenant or this promise. It's unilateral. And what I mean by that is God alone is the sole initiator of this covenant. It's not a bilateral covenant. Twice God calls it whose covenant? My covenant, God says. I'm establishing this with you, Noah, and your descendants. Noah didn't think this covenant up, nor did Noah have any part in coming up with this covenant. This covenant came from God Almighty as the creator and was going to be carried out by God Almighty as the creator. And that's what we have seen for 4,000 years. So this covenant is unilateral. It is all by God and from God. Number two, this covenant was unconditional. And it's unconditional because the world will never again be destroyed by a flood. Get this, no matter what we do or how we live. Now let that sink in for a moment. God did not say to Noah, Noah, if you obey me, I promise never to destroy the earth with a flood. If your sons will obey me, I promise never to do that. If their sons will obey me, I promise never to do this. To the contrary, this covenant does not depend upon my obedience or your obedience to God. This is not a two-way street where we do something and then God does something in response. This is a promise made by God in spite of the fact that the world had just been destroyed because of what? It's great wickedness, it's sinfulness, and God made this promise in spite of that, but also knowing full well that the world will soon plunge back into sin. This is a covenant of pure grace made in spite of our continuing sin. This covenant is proof that God's grace is greater than our sin. But this covenant is also universal. God made this covenant with Noah and his family, but the scope of the covenant went way beyond Noah and his family. This covenant encompasses not only every human being, but every living creature and even the earth itself. This means, get this, this is phenomenal. This means everyone in the world benefits from this promise that God made. Everyone, all of humanity, 
God's grace touches the life of everybody who has ever lived since Noah. God's goodness extends to all creation. Now, this does not mean, please understand this, this does not mean that everyone in the world is saved. But it does mean that there is no one in the world who has not received the grace and goodness of God, where their life has not been impacted by his goodness and grace. We are living under the rainbow of his grace, all of humanity. Now, that alone simply makes our condemnation greater if we do not embrace the God of the rainbow. For there is coming a day when God will judge the world, not by a flood, but by what? A fire. You can read about it in 2 Peter chapter 3, and specifically in verse 10. And so in an act of grace, God promised never again to destroy the earth with a flood. Now, can you imagine, if you were Noah, the assurance that this covenant gave Noah and his family? Man, it must have just reassured his heart. Whoa, we got off the flood. Whoa, God promised he's never going to do that again. I don't have to worry about that. God is so good. He's so gracious. And then God gave us a sign of his gracious covenant here. In the sign of the covenant, we all are familiar with it, it's God's rainbow that is seen in the clouds. Now, I think we would all agree that rainbows are a beautiful phenomenon that occurs all over the world. They're majestic, they're beautiful, they're magnificent. In fact, when you see a rainbow, what's the natural urge? You see a rainbow and you're, almost everyone's natural urge is, whoa, look at that. And if somebody's with you, you want to point it out to them. You want them to see it with you. Why? Because there are beautiful phenomenon in the sky. And because rainbows occur all over the world, it's a global sign just as the flood was global. And so God's rainbow is a sign perfectly fitted for the entire human race at all times in every location of the world. In fact, it is a sign that is easily understood in all ages. God's sign of the rainbow with both, was both gracious but also appropriate. It was given to bolster Noah's assurance of God's mercy. And even to this day, it is given to bolster our assurance of God's mercy. God put the sign of the rainbow in the clouds where Noah and his family would have looked with fear when the storms came. Except the same water that destroyed the earth now causes the rainbow. And this rainbow points to God's mercy breaking through even in his judgment. As one commentator puts it, though it is a bow, yet without arrows, it is not turned downwards towards the earth, but upwards towards heaven. And so it is a token of mercy and kindness and not of wrath and anger. In fact, the very language that is used here to describe the sign of this covenant is rather interesting. Look what God said about it in verse 13. He says, I set my rainbow in the cloud. In some of your Bibles, 
That word rainbow is translated even in the English as just bow, not rainbow. And it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. In fact, the Hebrew word for this English word rainbow is the same word for a battle bow that's used to shoot an arrow. And the point seems to be that the bow is now put away. It's hung up in the clouds by God, suggesting that the battle is over. The storm has passed. Thus, the rainbow is a reassurance of not only God's power of what he did in the flood, but also of God's peace now as we live under it. It's also interesting what God says about the sign of the rainbow. Look at it. God says in verses 14 through 16, He says, it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I, God says, will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Now, usually... Covenant signs in the Word of God are intended to remind people of their covenant responsibilities or obligations. But in this particular case, the sign serves to remind God of his promise that he's made to us. You say, well, why does God need a reminder? Does he forget? Oh, no, no, God doesn't forget anything. But he wants us to remember that he remembers to keep his promises always. So every time you see a rainbow in the clouds, it's not just that we are seeing this beautiful phenomenon and we remember God's covenant. God is in a sense saying to us every time we see a rainbow in the clouds, listen, I want you to see that rainbow that I have set in the clouds and I want you to remember that I as the God of creation, that I remember my covenant and I will always, always, always keep my promises. And so the whole tone of this passage here is designed to give us assurance. It's designed to reassure our hearts just as it did Noah's heart of God's abundant grace and mercy. This is the prime function of a covenant sign. It's meant to give us assurance that God will remember to keep his promises. And I hope you see, therefore, that sound theology, that is a proper view of our God, really can take a load off of your minds. Our God, he is not only the promise maker, he is the promise keeper. And in a world full of promise breakers, this means you can trust God. You can trust him with everything you've got. You can trust him with your very life. Because God not only makes promises, he keeps his promises. 
And what this leads us to, what this reminds us is we go forward. God's promise in the rainbow reminds us of God's promise, therefore, in the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, notice this in your notes. God's promise in the cross. And here's his promise to us in the cross of Jesus. All who trust in Jesus Christ will find grace instead of wrath and will have assurance of being delivered from the judgment of their sins. The Noahic covenant, this covenant here in Genesis 9, what it is doing for us, it is actually pointing us to a greater covenant. You say, what covenant's that? The new covenant in Jesus Christ. Jesus instituted the new covenant in his shed blood on the cross through which he promised to deliver all who trust in him from the judgment of their sins. In fact, listen to the words here from the writer of Hebrews. This is in your notes if you want to follow along. Here in Hebrews 9, verses 12 and 15, it says, He, speaking of Jesus, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood thus obtaining eternal redemption. And then verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In summary, when God sees a rainbow, it is a sign of his promise, of his covenant that he made long, long ago. And he upholds his promise because of that sign. And now, much the same way, when God sees the sign of the new covenant, that is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He remembers the covenant, the promise that he's made with us through his son, Jesus Christ. You know what this means? Get a load of this. This means I don't have to live in fear of God's judgment for my sin. Now let that sink in. I know because of the Noahic covenant, God keeps his promises, and I know because of the promise God made in the new covenant through Jesus Christ, I know, I can have assurance, I can be confident and I can have hope that all who trust in Jesus Christ will find grace instead of wrath. And we, I, will be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Just as God gave Noah and us the sign of this rainbow to reassure us that the storm of his wrath is over, so God tells us to observe the Lord's Supper where we see the bread and we see the wine as a sign that Christ did what? That he bore the storm of God's wrath on the cross. In other words, Christ died on the cross in your place and in my place, and he paid the penalty for our sins. The storm is over. Listen, Jesus bore the flood of God's wrath on the cross for us, and he now gave us the Lord's Supper to assure us of God's promise in the cross. We need not fear God's judgment if we are safe in Jesus Christ. Why? Christ is the ark of our salvation. 
God wants you to know, if you have trusted in Christ, he has removed your sins far from you as far as the east is from the west. And so, as we come to the Lord's table here in just a moment, let me encourage you to let the wine and the bread be a reminder of God's promise of salvation through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God has made us a promise that he will deliver us from the judgment of our sins. And as we see these signs, that is our reminder that God always, always keeps his promises. Whoa, that's great. And that means I can wake up tomorrow morning, I can go to work, and I can live with full assurance that I will not suffer the judgment of my sins because in faith in Jesus Christ, God doesn't see me now as a sinner. He sees me as a saint. He sees me as his son and his daughter. And Christ's righteousness covers me. It is beautiful. The only question is, are you safe in Christ? Just as Noah and his family were safe in the ark. Or are you still outside of Christ? All those who perished in the flood were outside of the ark and they died. There was no escape. Listen, today is the day of grace and mercy and salvation. And God's reminding us here, I am patient, but a day is coming when my judgment will be unleashed again on this earth. Until then, my patience is for you so that you would repent of your sin and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ while there's still time. Let's pray. If you're here today and have yet to trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, man, then please know that if you come by faith to Jesus, you will not be turned away. His blood will save you. His shed blood on the cross is so powerful that it paid in full the price for all your sins. But you must respond. You must repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Today is the day of mercy. And so cry out in prayer, asking God to forgive you and save you. If you're already a believer here this morning in Jesus Christ, then use this time to prepare your heart for participation in the Lord's Supper. If you're a guest here, not a member here at LifeBridge, you need not be a member of our church family to participate in communion, but we do believe the scriptures teach that you need to be a member of God's eternal family and identified with him in baptism. And so followers of Jesus Christ, those who trust him for salvation and identify with him in baptism, Man, you are invited, you are encouraged to come and participate in communion located at the four tables in the auditorium. You may take the bread and the cup back to your seat. And of course, the bread and juice, they simply represent the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus when he died on the cross. And it reminds us of who our Lord is, what he has done for us and is doing for us and will yet do for us when he returns. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus come. The music's going to play. And as it is, you're welcome to come at your convenience. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great passage. Thank you for your promises to know. We know that they were undeserved. And yet we all taste the benefits of these gracious promises. More than that, we thank you for your promises in the cross of Jesus Christ, that all who trust in Christ will find grace instead of wrath and will have assurance of being delivered from the judgment of their sins. And so thank you for your grace and mercy at the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As the music begins to play, you're welcome to take time to prepare your heart and then come. You're welcome to come as soon as the music plays.